0: So many people in the media business because we like that which feels good to us they over index their delivery of those things that have us believe one thing over another and what that's done is it's created a system where lots of folks think they have all the answers when they only know what it is that they've seen and people are not investing the the depth of thought and the depth of diligence in in terms of information and facts that are available out there
1: welcome in to another episode of the professional profiles podcast that uncovers the time-tested wisdom for the next generation join me a forward-thinking team, as i engage in insightful conversations with industry titans revealing the invaluable ingredients that pave the way to achieving remarkable success Today, we're lucky enough to welcome Tim Hayden on the Profiles podcast. Tim is the CEO at Braintrust. He's a speaker. He's an expert on AI data, privacy, and he's also a social anthropologist who studies human behavior and how it is influenced by technology and communication. My conversation with Tim covers many different topics, from the digital apocalypse to diversifying media consumption, the utopia slash dystopia in our foreseeable future, amplifying human thought and capacity, and much, much more. I really enjoyed my conversation with Mr. Hayden, and I'm sure you will too. So here's the interview. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate your time. Hey, it's great to be here, Charlie. I'm looking forward to it. Me as well. And just to get started and to get familiar with who you are, who is Tim Hayden and what does your career look like?
0: Well, I mean, Charlie, we we could probably talk about that the whole show. Um, But honestly, I would say I'm a serial entrepreneur. I'm first and foremost I'm a I'm a son and I'm a husband and I'm a dad um, those three things m- more often than anything else I'm those are my full-time positions that I have in life and then on the side you know I've I've started companies I've worked for a few companies but it's always been on this constant evolution of business. I don't want to call it technology per se, but technology's been a big threat of it but at the end of the day it's just always uh, I've always found myself on the bleeding edge or the um, the leading edge is probably the best way to say it of what's about to happen in terms of how business can operate and how business can succeed, be competitive and have happy customers at the end of the day, because a lot of what I've done has been in the, in the marketing and the customer experience side of things. But um, that's what I've been focused on for most of my career. Uh, we could unpack that, but... That's the headline, at least.
1: I'm sure we'll get to that a little later. And I want to focus on what you do right now. So, what is your sure. position currently?
0: So, I'm the CEO of Brain Trust, and uh, it's a consultancy that helps companies build a single source of truth with their first party data. So, the easiest way to explain it is that over time, uh, especially the last 16, 17 years, as the world has become more digital, as companies have started to build more digital connections with their customers. As they've done that over a period of time, they have more data than they know what to do with, right? And they have increasingly more data every day now, as there's there's new devices, there's new social networks, there's more connectivity. The car today, the connected vehicles, about 80% of all new vehicles on the road today are connected to the internet all the time. Everybody's done things in their homes with a connected television and Wi-Fi and everything else, connecting everything, right? This creates an immense amount of data, and if you're a company of any size, you've got to be able to understand who your customers are and how they're engaging with you. They can be coming at you through different channels, through different media, or different devices, and just certainly their behavior changes. So that's what we do. I mean, um, the... The core of what we do is implement customer data platforms. Um, And these are, uh, this is software that basically you connect all of your first party systems to it and then it creates a golden record. Uh, So you could be Charlie or Chuck or Charles or initial C on your credit card, your debit card, a different email address. Um, You got a new iPhone, your IP address changes, you change out the Wi Fi in your house. It gives you a new IP address. Over time, you start to have all these identities. What the customer data platform does is uh, is basically a process called entity resolution. And it basically pulls all that data together and builds one record and says, this is just Charlie, right? So what does that do? Just to, to in summary, tell you, it, it helps companies in terms of managing their marketing budgets because they're able to reduce their media spend once they... Stop sending you three different emails and only sending you one or sending five catalogs to your house instead of, sending, instead of sending just one. There's the other side of this too, which is regulatory, customer data privacy laws and a bunch of other things that are really starting to clamp down on companies. Big changes from Apple, big changes from Google. You have to do this. You have to get your your uh, a handle. I like to say like you, you have to wrangle all that first party data you have in order to compete and operate in a new reality.
1: Okay. So on that same note, I just am curious about what you see and how you see artificial intelligence playing a role in businesses in the future.
0: Sure. Well, again, that's, um, we only know what we know today, right? I have a 12 year old son who is a sixth grader in middle school. Right. And. I know within his lifetime, he'll have the ability to have a digital companion at some point, someone, a digital companion that's specific to him, that knows everything about him and can give him access to everything he'll want to know. That'll happen sometime in his lifetime. Artificial intelligence right now is used for, I would say, if you if I had to give you a top five list. um Lots of marketers, lots of content marketers and content strategists right now are loving the ability to have a writing assistant or uh, a graphic designer in the form of AI that can quickly help um, create new content for them, give them a head start or, or help them fine tune content that they've already designed or they've written. Um, that's where AI, I think, can be very powerful. Um, within the systems, you know, I, I told you about a customer data platform earlier. A customer data platform is actually using artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to clean up data, structure that data, and help you make sense out of customer behavior and customer preferences, those kinds of things. So there's a whole lot of AI that I would say is, is, is almost per se behind the scenes in terms of automating our lives, in terms of automating business. And that, to me, is the biggest thing that's happening right now. Um, Most folks are taking it for granted. Most folks don't realize that when they open the Netflix app on their television or Apple TV, the content it's serving up to you is basically based on a a number of things, what you watched before, uh, what people around you are watching, what it is you've identified with before, right? I mean, these are the things that are happening there. There are There's data that's coming from way beyond Netflix that influences that as well to understand who you are, um, who do you follow on Instagram, uh, how long do you watch what kind of videos, right? Those kinds of things are starting to be used by artificial intelligence or used by companies, we'll say, using artificial intelligence to be able to serve up more relevant and personalized uh, experiences. Let's just call it experiences because it's not all content and it's not all media. Um, just just making sure that what is being served up to you is much more relevant. So I just think that we're at a point where there's going to be some tough decisions, right? This is, do we, do we want to rely entirely on chat GPT or Claude or Bard or something meta is giving us with llama 2 um you know these models that that are grabbing everyone's attention right now or at least the headlines those models alone are are not the end game those models alone are not are not where it's going to stop and it's really not even where it started ai's been around for a long time and um i think we're just going to find it more and more wired into our lives and um, I think there, that most people are going to have to make a decision on where do they forfeit independent thinking, right? Um, and uh, I guess one of the quickest ways to say that, just to, to qualify that, is if you've used Google or Maps or Ways to drive somewhere, right? Or, or maybe your parents have. The bottom line is, these are services... That we've only had for a decade or so. Um, you know, there was a long time ago, and I say that 10 plus years ago, maybe even before we had um, Garmin and some of these other folks who created devices we could have in our cars, um, and certainly before we had that navigation technology in the vehicle itself, where we would have to remember. We'd have to get directions from someone and have to remember those directions to be able to get from point A to point B, right? So we've already started to forfeit some of our critical decision and, you know, critical thinking and and deep thinking and decision-making. We've already forfeited some of this on the peripheral of what we do every day. And again, most people take that for granted. They don't see that as as AI, but that's exactly what that is. Yeah.
1: So you mentioned Google and I'm curious, I actually don't know, what makes Google profitable? What is their kind of business strategy using data?
0: Oh, well. Uh, is it using data? Oh, yeah. I mean, Charlie, I'll tell you two stories. I'll just say Google, it became a verb, right? I mean, um, Google that. Search for that. Advertising revenue, right? I mean, if it's, if it's AdWords or it was uh, pay-per-click advertising that you were doing, or it was just search ranking, right? Search engine optimization. Um, you were paying Google directly and indirectly to be able to be uh, above the fold or a, a, top, uh, a top search result, right? You were doing everything you could to get more traffic redirected from Google to you. The same thing with advertising, with Google Ads. It's a media company, and it has been for the longest time. The other side of this, when you want to talk about data, I live in the Brentwood neighborhood here in Houston, And in that neighborhood, I'm going to guess that probably 30 or 40% of my, my neighbors and my house, we use Google Fiber for the internet. Now we watch 100% of our television through Apple TV on a Vizio television. And we have Ring on the front door. And we've use macs and we use ipads and we have iphones so if you really want to look at it who knows everything about what goes on in my house who knows everything in terms of the content that comes in and the content that that we consume and the messaging and the activity that we do digitally as it leaves the house who knows that and one entity knows it more than anybody else that's google and maybe a hair of a second place goes to Apple because of the devices we use, right? Mm -hmm. So um, at the end of the day, it's data that these companies have. And when you uh, you look at what Google is doing with Bard and what they've done with Palm and a few of their other AI efforts, the models that they're building and what they're trying to do to basically bring some efficiencies if you talk to them, they're all about amplifying human thought. They're all about amplifying human capacity. And I believe that statement. I think Google's already done that in spades with Google Workspace, with everything we've talked about with Google and advertising, and certainly with um, Android as a platform. They've already made so much of our life easier, more navigable, um, just more frictionless. That's what they're going to do with these AI models. And how do these AI models, how do they gain intelligence? Well, there's the models themselves, the ability to train them and the ability to make them much more functional in terms of the, the reasoning and the, the AI's ability to make decisions or to uh, create responses to deliver responses based on prompts. Well, the other side of that is that what else makes this AI do what it does is data, right? It is information. So it's not any different than any one of us as humans growing up, right? The reason that everybody says keep on reading books, right? Keep on filling your mind with information and it will make you much more empathetic, It'll make you much more and, and acutely aware of the world around you. That's exactly what we're talking about doing with artificial intelligence. It's just a little more linear, at least in the way we put it on paper or a whiteboard. It's data that informs artificial intelligence. So um, at the end of the day, <clears throat> the, um, the digital companion that I mentioned that my son will have an opportunity to have in his life um, I think I'll have that opportunity at some point as well, right? Maybe for the second half of my life, I'll be able to have a digital companion, which could come in pretty handy because of electronic medical records and and things that I want to have with me as I age, and I want to make sure that I, I don't have anything that's misdiagnosed and that my doctors are smarter because of the data I'm able to give them, right? That's that's one thing that's there. But at the end of the day, I just think that um, you've got you you have data that a handful of companies maybe two handfuls of companies are pulling in let's call it 70 or 80% of all the data in the world and those are the ones that will reach this point of singularity is the is the term that everyone's given it that all of a sudden you'll have the ability to have all the information in the world at a with your voice or on a screen that goes with you everywhere could be a phone could be a watch could be something that's implanted in you. You don't know where it's going to go, but you'll have that connection and you'll have all the access to all that information as well as all of your information, um, stored somewhere other than just your brain.
1: So th- what I'm getting is data is a double-edged sword and it can be good. And there are good uses. It helps. I mean, the algorithm predicts what we want and it, It makes our lives easier, but also with these big conglomerates having all our data, there has to be some worry in your mind that they could use that for bad reasons as well, right? How worried are you using data improperly?
0: Well, I mean, let's just look at right now where this is not a political statement by any means, but we look at the belief system across the United States and how that belief system is not just fragmented today but it is it's been polarized in many ways right and i mean that is is a writ large statement it doesn't have just to do with politics or religion or sex or gender or anything else that people believe it's it's the whole myriad of the entire spectrum if you would if of what we think and what we believe is now been used against us, right? And this is and this is the challenge. I mean, it's already happened in terms of social media, in terms of broadcast media. It's not any different if you read any stories about how the interstate highway system and a lot of state highways were built in a way to segregate people of color from the rest of the, of the city, right? Let's, let's put the highway here so people who live on that side stay over there kind of thing, right? Same thing when it comes to data and the way it flows to and from us. so many people in the media business, because we like that which feels good to us, they over index their delivery of those things that have us believe one thing over another. and what that's done is it's created a system where lots of folks think they have all the answers when they only know what it is that they've seen, and uh, people are not investing the, the depth of thought and the depth of diligence in, in terms of information and facts that are available out there. So we're already there, Charlie. I mean, I would say we're already at a point where technology has been used, whether that was advertent and intentional, or it just was a surprise to its creators, right? That we got in this jam um, that, that we're in. I think the the future, and I've thought about this quite a bit, is if a, if a Google or an Apple, a Samsung, Vizio, at and uh, you can go down the list and you could probably start to guess the companies that are sitting on the most data um, and seem to know the most about what do we appreciate and, and, and what, what talks to our lifestyles and what talks to our preferences the best and the most. These are the companies that could become very powerful. And if they become too powerful, then they not only um, could uh, monetize and otherwise create accessibility issues to information um, but they could disrupt what we've known in the Western Hemisphere as free markets and free economies, um, because you only have three or four places that you could go to buy products or to um, search for products. Right. So, I think there's um, there's a number of there's a number of things that are um, uh, I would very possible. And I would say at this point, they're, they're probable that they're going to happen. It's, uh, it's what people say is we'll, we'll have some utopian realities in the future, but we're going to have a whole lot of dystopia as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So what can we do and what can, what can governments do as well to help prevent these companies from getting too much power and being able to control the markets?
0: Well, the hardest thing for government to do is to try to legislate culture. And the fantastic thing that, that's true about everything we're talking about here is that we've all been party, as, as the public and the consumer, we've all been party to this polarization and the warping and the erosion of our ability to think deeply, right? We've all been part of that. We've allowed ourselves to stare at our phones. We've allowed ourselves to sit on our couch and watch three or four hours of television every night, right? And to only stream that which we want to watch, right? We've been given control. And with that, I think it's going to be hard for governments to legislate so much of what's possible. I think what we'll see is more of what's already happened on the data privacy side, right? Data privacy and data security, and data exchange practices. Um, a, a lot of data privacy laws have written into them rules on what companies can and can't do to sell data and or to market data, especially if they're not getting um, the customers to opt in and to uh, give consent for that, that data to be sold or, or exchanged. I think we'll see more regulations around that kind of thing. I think we're going to see some major moves Um, that will get wrapped up in the court system for the better part of probably half a decade in terms of what Europe wants to do and will lead the way and the United States will follow with antitrust, right? Just saying these companies are too big and they're too powerful and they become a threat to competition in the free market, right? Um, the, the, The fear of monopolies, Um, which, again, is not something that's new to the world. We went through this in the first half of the 20th 20th century, the first 20 years of the 20th century, where we had five or six families that owned 80% of industry here in the United States, right, directly and indirectly. It's happened before. I think we're getting to that point where we'll start to see the government and then, the judicial side of government start to lean into any which way they can maybe regulate it first but certainly take some of these companies to task for being too big and too powerful okay
1: i'd love to just switch now to three of the questions that i asked everyone about their advice to the uh, the next generation so correct me if i'm wrong but you do some speaking engagements as well I so do. okay so you have not done a TED talk, but if you were to give one, lead a ten-minute TED talk on five minutes' notice, what would it be about, and why would it be that?
0: Well, and and this partially answers some of the um, direction I would give to younger people today. Is I, you know, my TED talk would be learning to walk again. Um, I have not owned a car, my own car, since two thousand three. My wife and I have split a vehicle since two thousand three. Um I won't go through all the ways we made that work but the byproduct of it and the result of me taking the bus, taking the train, sometimes taking Uber or Lyft, certainly riding my bicycle um to, to take the train or to ride the bus, you have to walk a few miles a day just to get to and from stops. Um what that's done over the course of that time frame, especially over the last 10 years it's, it's helped me build more empathy with the world around me. And I don't have it prepared as a Ted talk, but I could tell you that the the thing that I can share with people are the many different ways that I see the world different than most of my peer friends do because they get in a car and they're having to look at red lights and brake lights and sit in traffic and I'm able to be productive and or extremely observant um, because I'm not driving, right? Um, Now I drive, but I drive, you know, a total of three to four hours per week. Um, And that's usually to and from the grocery store to take our son to um, sports or Boy Scouts or whatever it might be, right? But uh, at the end of the day, if we want to understand how to keep traffic low, if we want to tackle pollution, if we want to um, deal with the parking problems, if we want to deal... There's so much that has been caused by single occupancy vehicles. And I take myself out of that system by commuting the way that I do. And part of it has been the walks that I've had Over the course of the last 10 years, especially as Austin has changed, that have me acutely aware of so many of the things that I read about and that I hear about on the news that I that I read about in um, different publications around town. I, I just feel like I have much more empathy and much more knowledge about what's happening in Austin, Texas than the average person who gets in their car, turns on a podcast and drives from point A to point B.
1: And on that same note, I'm kind of interested in what you were talking about about your different perception of the world and being able to observe. So, our reality is controlled by what we see, and what we see mm-hmm. is being controlled by these companies that you're talking about, like Google, using an algorithm to create an individualized, specific thing that's tailored to us. Right. How can we take an objective approach to get the whole picture when? our content is so individualized?
0: Well, I think, um, you know, most humans, I would say there are introverts and even introverts can have wanderlust, right? We all have wanderlust inside us. We have a deep wanting and need to experience foreign environments. Um, a lot, of, uh, a lot of folks I know that are either motivational or prescriptive in terms of um, their advice and direction they give to audiences is around this idea of being uncomfortable, right? And I think it, you need to embrace the uncomfortable. You need to embrace the uncomfortable in terms of don't just get excited about one subject or one topic of study and then read as much as you can about that. You may want to do that just to excel and to perform very well within coursework or to get a job, but start to read about other things. If you're if you're into if you want to be a lawyer, certainly you want to read case law. You want to read um, about the U.S. Supreme Court and cases that have gone through there. You're going to want to read about precedent that's been there. You're going to want to read about high-performing attorneys of the past and present to understand what you can emulate and some of their procedures and some of the ways they go about their jobs. But at the same time, you know, look at barbecue or fast cars or solar energy or something, right. You know, um, to, to start to widen and to, to challenge what it is you're feeding yourself in terms of information, and that goes beyond the obvious, which is, um, you know, go about your life in moderation. Don't eat at the same restaurant all the time. Change up. This is a fantastic. Central Texas is a playground for you to have many staycations on a regular basis, just to go out and find new restaurants and, and new things to do all over the area, not the same place all the time, Um, the more you mix it up, the more diverse you are in terms of what you see, what you read and what you experience, the more empathetic you're going to be and the more fair you're going to be to your own decision-making. And I think that's absolutely critical at this point where um, younger folks have earlier in life Had more access to digital screens. They've had more access to digital media. And I think it's important that they understand that there's a great big world outside of that. And there's an opportunity to go find and explore different types of experiences and to do as much as that as as you can. And that's not something you do just for the summer. That's, um, that's something that I think everyone should try to embrace for for life because you're always learning, right? So make sure that you're always learning, that you're not just being warped in terms of only having one swim lane for the topics or the, uh, the type of information that you consume.
1: So you just gave two amazing responses to my last two questions, and this one is sort of similar, but it's one that I always do, and I... I'm curious to hear your answer which is if you had a billboard that millions could see right and you could put a quote idea or message on this billboard what would it be and why would it be that
0: you know anyone who knows me um i use the hashtag saddle up uh a lot and i was using that long before there was a business in east austin called saddle up but i believe you know the notion that that we have everything we need. Um, And I just had um, Jaris Montes, uh, Jared Montes Slack, who is the head of development for I Live Here, I Give Here. I sit on the board of that organization. And we just had a board retreat on Friday. And it was a, that was a phrase that he used. He goes, we have everything we need. Um, My, my statement saddle up, the hashtag saddle up is always offered Uh, against stories or articles on people making something happen, right? And just, just trying and, and more often than not succeeding, you know, and doing, doing what they can with what they have. Um, And to me, embracing the notion that we have everything that we need, I think is absolutely, it's a deeper, um, it's a, it's a deeper statement than just material things, it is, do you have the right social network? Do you have the right friends of friends of friends in place? Um, or do you even know if you do? Go qualify that and you will find that you have everything you need to do what you want to do in life. You, it may take you years to get there. It may take you months to get started. But bottom line is, all of us as individuals have everything we need to go through life and build the life that we want.
1: All right. Well, that was an amazing answer to an amazing interview. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on.
0: You bet, Charlie. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, this This was a lot of fun.